Friends, uh, once a year or in May, we take four minutes before the sermon to do our spiritual growth survey. I know maybe it's a little bit of a pain in the neck to you, but I got to tell you, it's so helpful. You know, as leaders, we're trying to figure out, is our church accomplishing our mission? We can see that we're growing numerically, and that's great. But we're asking, are we growing spiritually? This Christian thing is a hard thing. And we need to know, are we growing? Where are we growing? Where are we not growing? It helps me plan series. It helps our leaders bring emphasis. So, at all four of our campuses right now, thinking of all of you at South Naperville and at Bolingbrook and at Wheaton and at Hobson, we're going to take just a moment to do the spiritual growth survey. You say, well, I'm just visiting. That's cool. Thank you. Welcome. Please join us in this survey as well. One little thing. We've always done it on paper, which is still an option. But we, I would encourage you to consider doing it electronically. In fact, here on the screen, you see this uh, web address you can go to. Same identical. It's just this helps us not have to do all the paperwork. You know, it's processed automatically. So if you're so inclined, again, everybody do this, either paper. The paper you'll find in your seat back or maybe the Uh, ushers handed you one. But let me walk you through it. You'll see there it asks your age. Did I tell you not to lie? Don't lie. Say it how it is. Uh, um, Oh, I just looked at that. I'm I'm entering a new category. Uh, Great. (laughs) Can't stand it. Uh, Check what campus and which service you're attending. Uh, Then it asks a question about how long you've been attending our church. You know, let us know that. There's a question there about how often do you attend? If you wouldn't mind, tell us that. Question three says, how often do you read the Bible? Let me just tell you why we're doing this. You'll see the next four questions center around our four priorities. We've identified four things that the Bible says are necessary if we're going to flourish spiritually. We call call it pursue, connect, serve, reach. Pursue, connect, serve, reach. Pursue him daily. That's the first one. And it's all about connecting with God, pursuing his face in Bible study and prayer. So we don't know, you know, if you're doing that unless you tell us. And so let us know how much you read the Bible. The second one about serving, or I'm sorry, connecting with a group. It says, my involvement in a small group or mid-sized group is best described as. And then Question five is about serving on a team. It's, uh, I volunteer in a ministry. Let us know if you do that and how often. Question six has to do with reaching your neighbor. That's our fourth priority, and that is expressed here by uh, my experience in inviting unchurched people to our church. Do you do that? Let us know. Question seven is about your financial participation. Uh, and to those of you who are generous in this regard, can I just take this moment to thank you? We have realized that God has called us to be generous. We've longed to see our lives impact eternity and realize this is one way we can be involved. And so many people in our church are inspiring in their generosity, and I do thank you for that. Let us know, though, how, how you are in that category. And then the last question, eight, is this really a, what, are you growing Are you plateaued or spiritually are you in decline? Give us a window into that, how you're doing. All right, thank you. Again, this information is so useful. We compare it to last year's and the year before that, and we identify trends on how we're doing. 
and it's just extremely useful to us who are in leadership. So why don't we do this? Uh, as I continue, could we have the ushers at all four campuses come down and collect those of you who filled out a paper version? So pass them to the rows, and the ushers will collect them. Thank you, friends. You know, I have one more fun survey question, but this one involves my favorite pizza in the whole world, uh, Lou Malnati's pizza. I'm, I, it's kind of fun. A, a guy in my small group works at Lou Malnati's in the administrative headquarters, and uh, I know the answer to this question from him, but I'll put it on the screen. What do you think Lou Malnati's biggest day is? Uh, when do they sell the most pizza? Go ahead and whisper to a person near you which of these six answers you think is the right answer. All right. Uh, By the way, next week is Mother's Day, just as a reminder. And happy is the mother who gets Lou Malnati's on her day. But that's not the one, unfortunately. How about Thanksgiving? Nope, Thanksgiving, they're close. Although I did find out that the day before Thanksgiving is one of their biggest days. You know, people are like, I ain't cooking two days in a row. I'll tell you that much. (laughs) Halloween? No. Uh, What about Valentine's Day? I think it's romantic, but apparently not. Uh, New Year's Eve? No, friends, Super Bowl Sunday is the day. They are so busy. It's like all hands on deck. Every employee has to come into work. And I experienced this dynamic at a, on a Super Bowl uh, Sunday a few years back. I arrived, and man, the place was packed. And I'm like, what's going on? Oh, yeah, busiest day of the year. And then I realized why it's the busiest day of the year. They'd call out a name. They'd say, uh... Tom Anderson, and Tom would have, imagine six boxes stacked on top of each other, and they'd be like, wow, Tom, you got quite a party, Super Bowl party, yeah. And the next person, big stack of boxes, next person, big, all of a sudden, I'm like, very conscious of the fact that I was not invited to a Super Bowl party. I was getting a pizza for my family. You know, Jeff Griffin, my box never seems so small. You know, I, I, I'm like, yeah, that's mine, thanks. You know, and everybody's looking at me, loser, you know. And I'm just like, oh, Lord, my, my public shame. And as I drove home, I seemed to notice everywhere there are just cars parked in front of houses as people were having Super Bowl parties. And I, I felt like the only person on planet Earth not invited to a party. Talking about the fear of rejection. Trust me, it's real. There is something powerful, an effect people have on us. We have this God-given longing for people to invite us, for people to like us, for people to want us, for people to uh, be interested in a relationship with us. That is such an intense need. And when we're rejected, Oh, does it hurt. Friends, we need to talk about this. And we're going to learn all about the fear of rejection from the Apostle Paul. He wrote a letter called 2 Timothy to Timothy. Timothy was this young pastor. Paul loved him. Paul was coming to the end of his life. In fact, as he wrote this letter, he was imprisoned in Rome. Why was he arrested? For being a Christian. That's why. He's in prison in Rome. He's awaiting what turns out to be his execution. 
And he writes this letter to Timothy, and it's a moment he's dealing with rejection in a major way. Can I show you? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. Look at this. Do your best to come to me quickly. This is Paul asking Timothy to come visit. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Friends, even though Paul's in prison, apparently people could be there for him. Maybe he was talking through the bars. Maybe there's a window. Maybe they allowed visitors to come into the prison to be. But Paul needs people, and Demas had been there. In fact, if we can read more about Demas, he was a friend, a co-worker of Paul's in ministry. And Paul loved Demas, but they must have had a falling out. Let's highlight Demas. And I'm starting a list of the people who have hurt Paul. Next to there, I deserted. That's what it says. Paul said, at some point, Demas said, you know what, Paul? I'm out of here. See ya. And, and Paul felt the deep pain of being rejected, abandoned, stabbed in the back by a friend. You ever had that happen to you? You ever had a friend who turns on you or disinvites you or unfriends you or some hurt in that way. Boy, is that tough. Some of the worst wounds come from former friends. But that's not it. Demas isn't the only problem. How about this? Verse 10 continues with, Cretans has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Friend, these two, Cretans and Titus, here we have the word gone. Paul doesn't, remember with, with, uh, um, with what's his name? Uh, Demas, there's a spiritual failure, Paul says. Paul says, because he loved the world, he has abandoned me. Paul saw spiritual failure there. He doesn't see spiritual failure here. He just says they're gone. Maybe Paul understood why they went to these cities. He knew that those cities needed their spiritual leadership. So they hadn't done anything wrong, but it still hurt. Can you relate to that? Do you have people who have just moved? Way. They had a job transfer, or a kid who went away to college, or a loved one who passed away. They didn't do anything wrong, but their absence hurts bad. That's what Paul's talking about. Here, here's another one, verse 12. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. In the case of Tychicus, he sent. This was Paul's decision. It's really big of Paul. Paul cares so much about the cause of Christ that if it means more pain for him for the advance of the cause, he's willing to go there. And he looked at Ephesus and he said, you know what, Tychicus, as much as I want you to be with me, I got to ask you to go to Ephesus because they, they need you. But still, even though it was his call, he felt the loss. Here's another one. Alexander, verse 14 Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too, Timothy, should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. Alexander's an enemy. We don't know much about him. He was a metal worker, and maybe he was indifferent towards Paul at one point, but something's happened, and he's turned on him, and he is causing Paul harm. He's hurting him. He's opposing him. Have you ever had an enemy, 
Someone who for whatever reason just decided, you know what, I'm going to make you miserable. I'm going to cause you harm and I'm okay with that. Have they criticized you? Have they turned others against you by talking about you behind your back? You know, if, if this whole criticism and gossiping thing was a problem then, nowadays with social media, it's off the charts. I mean, people are hurting others all the time, and they don't even have to get face-to-face with folks. They can just send off a little emoji sometimes is all it takes to really send a zinger into people's hearts. This is tough. Paul's hurting. Do you feel it? Not only is he in prison, which is terrible, all of, look at this list. Uh, let's go to the next slide. All of this list of people, they are ripping his heart out. He is feeling rejected, wounded, abandoned, lonely. And, and just so you know, this is dangerous. We fear rejection for a good reason. It could destroy Paul. Paul could spiral into depression. He could start living making choices that are harmful and destructive. Paul's life, the end here in the final chapter, could have been very ugly. So we fear rejection for a good reason. Some of you are like, Jeff, you're not encouraging me. I am, this is my life, and this is why I fear rejection. Here's what I want to say. Fearing rejection, we fear it because we feel like we have no control. We feel like all these people have control in my life. And we fear it because there's nothing we can do. So we think that's where we make a mistake. Paul's going to show us we are in control. There is things we can do. We can demonstrate initiative regarding people. In fact, Lou Malnais, you know what I did? Uh, After that year of uh, total rejection, I said, all right, honey, I'm going to make sure I'm invited to a party next year by hosting one. Yeah, Jeff, you're the first person I invite to my own party. And I invited a bunch of other people, and I made sure I was at a Super Bowl party by taking a little initiative. And as we're about to see with Paul, that's what he does. In fact, let's take a look at his brilliant strategy. I want to go back to verse 9. We've already read it, but this brings out a point I call recruit. All right, here we go. Verse 9 said, do your best to come to me quickly. Look at that. Do your best to come to me quickly. Is he being, you know, beating around the bush? No, he's being direct. He's saying, hey, Timothy, I need you. Please. He Does he say, Timothy, you know, if you ever happen to be in Rome, you might as well think of swinging by and saying hi. No. Paul's going after it. He's demonstrating relational initiative. He's saying, I know I'm the Apostle Paul, and I'm, not, I'm supposed to be tough and all. But Paul says, I know I'm only human, and humans need relationships. Timothy, please come to me quickly. Friends, do you demonstrate initiative in meeting your relational needs? Do you know that loneliness is kind of like hunger and thirst? God gave us these pains to move us to action. When when we're thirsty, it's a pain that... It's supposed to trigger us to go get something to drink so we can be hydrated. When we're hungry, it's a pain because the body needs food. And when we're lonely, it's a God-given pain because we were made for relationships. So obey your thirst. If you're feeling lonely, 
act on it. One of the big mistakes about relationships is this myth that great friendships are supposed to just happen without any initiative. You know, you just go through life and boop, 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 they all pop into your life. Nah, not usually. Relationships take somebody stepping up. And at this point, you're like, ah, if I try to recruit those good friends, uh, that's dangerous business. I could get rejected. Yeah, that's possible. Like after church, you, you come to someone and say, hey, you know, it's good to see you guys again. Don't know if you're interested, but we were going out to lunch. Would you care to join us? No? Okay. Uh, see ya. And is that awkward? Yes, it is. But deal with it. Rise up and do it again. Uh, this pursuit of the people in your life that you need is how God designed us to enjoy relational, life-giving friendships. Uh, it's why we do small groups in our church. Uh, we've seen that spiritually we need people. And so groups are intended to take us from being a church that attends a service to a family that does life together. And some of you are like, well, Jeff, I've tried a group before, and it was like crazy central, you know. They were, okay, I've been in that group too. And uh, friends, you got to move on. you got to press on. you got to say, I'm not giving up on this vision. I'll go to one group. I'll go to two groups. I'll, I'll do my third group until I find where I can connect. Uh, friends, if you chicken out, you will lose out on life because we were made for relationships. And Paul knows it. He says, Timothy, I just got to be direct. I need you. All right. So recruit. That's one thing. Verse 11 tells us about reconcile. That's the second thing to do. Reconcile. Let me read it. He says, bring Mark, get Mark and bring him with you. Timothy, when you come, bring Mark because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Why is that all about reconciliation? Well, let me tell you. Paul had been alienated with this guy, Mark. They had had a falling out. You can read about it in Acts 15. Apparently on the first missionary journey Paul went on, Mark was there, and it was hard. And at a certain point, Mark said, you know what, Paul? I'm done. I'm going home. And Paul was hurt by that. So as the second missionary journey embarks, Mark shows up. And Paul's like, yeah, that ain't happening, Mark. I'm sorry, buddy. But I need people who are going to be able to endure till the end. And you've shown that you can't do that. So no. Barnabas, who's a cousin of Mark's, Barnabas gets in Paul's face and says, you got to let Mark go. Give him another chance. And Paul's like, no, no, he showed his true colors. It doesn't happen. Paul and Barnabas have Acts 15. Some of you are like, really? Do they fight in the Bible? Do they have, uh, you know, disagreements that lead to going their separate ways? Yep, real people, Acts 15. And so this Mark and Paul, it had been ugly, but something's happening. This, this, This grace thing, this Jesus and forgiveness thing. Apparently the time has passed. The two of them have processed their own failure. They've reconnected, they've talked about their failure, they've repented, and they've forgiven, and they are great friends again. Isn't that incredible? And Paul is, in fact, saying, you know who I want to do ministry with? I want to do ministry with Mark. Part of the solution to your and my relational needs is employing this thing called reconciliation. You know what I found about people, men, I'm thinking of you guys, there are are men who toss it, 
and men who fix it when it comes to things. You know, there are some men who are like, oh, don't throw that away. I can fix that. I got duct tape and I got super glue and uh, I can fix that. And I would wonder, how are you with relationships? Uh, it's broken. Just toss it. Or are you, you know what? I think we can fix that. I, I know that sometimes there are relationships where the person is dangerous and we need boundaries for our own survival and health. Uh, I acknowledge that. But sometimes God's saying, no, 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 this isn't a moment for a boundary. This is a moment to seek reconciliation. And when that happens, I've seen, you know, children alienated from their parents for decades. And then God bring reconciliation and life-giving, loving friendship again. I've seen friends. In fact, one of my best friends is a guy who used to be my worst enemy. He and I had an awful falling out. He caused me so much pain, I probably blessed him in that way too. And yet now, through the grace of Christ and forgiveness, we are friends again, and it's better than ever. So employ reconciliation as part of the solution. Here, this is so fun. I love this section of scripture because it's so practical. Not only are we being introduced to the people in Paul's life, uh, it's coming down to the basics of life. Look at this, verse 13. Timothy, when you come, bring the cloak that I left in Carpus, uh, at, with Carpus at Troas. Oh, and bring my scrolls, especially the parchments. <laughs> Isn't that fun? Um, Paul here, you'll see I use the word read. Paul knows he's in prison. He's heading towards winter. He knows there are going to be cold, lonely nights. And so Paul says, I need my cloak. Paul envisions himself wrapped in his favorite cloak, reading his favorite book. Admittedly, books back then were in the form of scrolls and parchments. The Bible would have been Paul's favorite book. But other faith-filled books beyond that, friends, reading meets part, not all, but part of the need we're talking about. In fact, a commentator on this very verse said this. I love this. Happy is the person who early in life discovers books as friends. And uh, I, I, I resonate. Some of you are like, oh, that's so pathetic. Anybody who points to a book as their best friend, I mean, get a life. All right, all right I don't want to push it too far. But I'm telling you, through a book, we meet other people. They speak to us. They share their heart and maybe help us see our own lives. The book becomes a mirror through which we understand ourselves. And I love Christian biographies. And I've met, I mean, some of my closest friends have been dead for centuries uh, through books. And so this is a way to deal with this need. And Paul knows it. Verse 14, Uh, I already read this, but I return to it because there's something there we need to see. Remember Alexander? Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. Little phrase I skipped over, I read it, but I didn't comment on it. I, I will now. Paul says, the Lord will repay him for what he has done. That's the phrase. The Lord will repay him. Paul is saying, I could be so ticked. I could be so bitter I could be so resentful because of what he's done, but I'm not going to. I'm going to release him to the Lord. I have a need for justice, but I'm going to, in grace, let go of that need. And if the Lord wants to repay him, 
If the Lord wants to bring justice, that's the Lord's doing, not mine. In fact, we studied this a few weeks back. We looked at Romans chapter 12 where God says, It is mine to avenge. I will repay. Don't hold bitterness. Release that person to the Lord. Release your bitterness to the Lord. I'll tell you why that's so important. Some of us, because of bad relational wounds and experiences we've had, we're so bitter that we find it hard to trust others. We've been, you know, bit once. We're not about to do it again. Well, you need to be willing to do it again. Some of us, uh, our hearts are so bitter and hard. Each hurt is like a new brick in a wall that separates us from healthy, life-giving relationships. And to keep our hearts soft, we've got to have grace and just say, I'm going to love my enemy. And I'm going to just give over my need for justice to the Lord. Lord, you repay. If you think anything needs to repay, that's your business. I'm letting go and releasing them to you. Do you see that? Keep your heart soft and pliable. Don't let it grow wounded and bitter and angry and resentful. You'll never be able to move forward with good relationships from that posture. One last one, and this is good stuff. Verse 16. At my first defense, and by this he's referring to court, Paul was arrested for being a Christian in prison. He's already gone to court to trial once. And he said, at my first defense, no one came to my support. But everyone deserted me. Oh, the pain. Can you imagine? I can just see Paul standing there, his eyes looking at the audience, hoping for one friend, some love, anybody, nothing. In his darkest hour, he is completely deserted. Next phrase, Paul says, may it not be held against them. That's the same thing, that grace. Lord, I could get bitter, but I'm not going there. I'm showing grace. May it not be held against them. Paul wants to keep his heart soft. Here's the part, though, that I'm so excited to look at with you. Paul continues, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. Friends, this is amazing. Uh, Here, recognize the presence of God. Recognize the friendship of God, the love of God. That's what happened to Paul as he stood on trial and none of his friends were there. Everybody had let him down. You know who didn't let him down? The Lord. And does Paul say, yeah, God was somewhere? No, he doesn't say somewhere. I love this. The Lord stood at my side. It was like I could sense him right there. I mean, there he was. He had his arm around me. He gave me strength. He whispered in my ear, we're going to do this, Paul. You're going to be okay. Hang in there. And friends, I'm here to tell you that when when humans have let you down or when they haven't let you down, the primary friendship of our life should be God himself. Now, some who are kind of just visiting or some who are exploring Christianity, you're like, oh, here they go. They've got an invisible friend who they talk to. Oh, that's nice. And I know I was the same way, you know, and people talked about, oh, yeah, I was talking with the Lord. I was like, okay, it's true. I have discovered that the single greatest opportunity on planet Earth is friendship with your maker. And when I say friendship, I mean like you have with other people only better. 
Really, you can talk to him through prayer. He talks back through his spirit in your mind and through the word of God, he talks back. Uh, You can sense his presence and enjoy his love and be led by him through your day as he nudges you to do this or that. And as he strengthens you, each day becomes an adventure with God as your best companion. Friends, don't miss out on what Paul discovered And that is the power of friendship with God, the joy of friendship with God. Do you know it? Now, we need both human friendship and the divine friendship. But make sure you get the best one in place. Uh, This is interesting. So, again, 2 Timothy was written to Timothy. Paul was in Rome. Timothy was in Ephesus. Ephesus is on the west coast of Turkey. Can you imagine Turkey in the Mediterranean Sea there? That same exact region where Timothy was receiving these words. Now fast forward the clock 2,000 years. There was a guy in the same region of western Turkey just recently who had to put this into practice, quite literally, had to experience the... Whoops, okay. All right. This is him. Hey. Uh, Friends, uh, Andrew Brunson and his wife, Noreen, both of them were classmates of mine at Wheaton College, and they went to pastor a church in Turkey, in that same region Timothy was at. Um, Maybe you heard about this in the news. It it did not go well. A very hostile area towards Christianity. They were arrested on trumped-up charges as terrorists. And sure enough, Brunson, uh, Andrew that is, not his wife, but Andrew spent the last two years in prison. It became big deal. In fact, went all the way up to President Trump. Eventually, last fall, he was finally released from prison after two years. In fact, he was just in Wheaton a couple months ago speaking to the college students of his experience. I, I saw him interviewed by George Stephanopoulos on ABC News, and George asked him, what was it like? And one of the things we found out is that part of his time, he was put in solitary confinement. Do you know that that's torture? That's what it is. When you're put in a closet where there's no windows and you have no contact with people, it's like denying someone food or water. I mean, you're torturing them by depriving them of a basic human need. And George Stephanopoulos asked, how did you survive solitary confinement? And Andrew Brunson said, do you want to know? Prayer. He said, I talked with God for hour upon hour upon hour. And you're like, come on. Uh, Andrew Brunson said, I was this close. He goes, it was so hard. I thought I was going to lose my sanity. And the only thing that preserved my sanity was connecting with God. Friends, it works. I mean, God was real for Timothy in West Turkey 2,000 years ago, and God was real for Andrew Brunson in the same region just last year. And we need to know that it can happen in your darkest hour. You can be invaded by this undeniable realization of God's nearness, of his love for you, his voice speaking strength and encouragement into your heart. Not only in your lowest hour, in your best hour, you can meet and enjoy God. In every hour, you can meet and enjoy God. The reason we do the Christian thing 
is God and relationship with him. May we all press in to prayer and to Bible reading, seeking throughout our day to connect and build a friendship with the Almighty God. Now, we struggle with this. I I struggle with this. Sometimes I will, for lack of discipline, go a number of days where I've been too busy and I've just not done a good job of prioritizing time with God. And you know what I feel? I feel an ache in my gut. At first, I don't even know what it is. At at first, I'm just like, oh, I don't feel right. I feel empty. And then I'm like, oh, I know what it is. I miss him. I miss him bad. I long for God. I mean, God has been the joy of my life. His love has been the most exhilarating experience ever. When I try to do life without God, it is empty. And I feel just this longing for him again. Friends, don't miss out on prioritizing the glorious opportunity of building friendship with God. Let me just do a review list here real quickly. Uh, we, uh, yeah, do, do we fear rejection? Yeah, because we were made to be known and loved. And so we must not be passive relationally. We must be intentional as Paul was. You got to recruit, go after those friendships. You got to reconcile, don't throw it away, fix it. You got to read, meet others through the reading. You got to release that bitterness when you've been hurt to the Lord and keep your heart soft and trusting. And you got to recognize that God is there and he's your very best friend. I just have this prayer, this vision that our church would be a place that we're just not folks who attend a service, man. We are bonded. You can't know everybody, but we know some. And as a result, there is a sweet connection. We are family, not only with each other, but with the Lord. Let's pray towards that end. Lord, thank you for giving us this window into Paul's darkest hour. Thank you for showing us the way through his example. And God, some of us are scared. We've been hurt and we're tempted to just give up on that relationship you want us to have. Would you give us tenacity? Would you give us resilience? Would you give us the courage to pursue intentionally joining a group, building those friendships? And God, may the days ahead be marked for each of us by sweet, life-giving relationships. And then mostly with you, God. We want to know you. I think of Moses and King David and the Apostle Paul, these great spiritual leaders who wanted you above all else. May that be true of us. And may we find you, God, please. Even now, as we sing this final song, stand by our side as you did with Paul. Give us this realization. You're right here. Let your strength flow into our hearts because we need you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.